Please turn in your Bibles to the passage that uh, Chris read for us, Luke 24. Also, uh, please uh, turn, if you'd like to sort of prepare in advance, turn also to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in your Bibles if you want to follow along. So that's um, Luke chapter 24, and then we're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's pray together. Father, we humble ourselves before you and we come to you now and we pray that you will help us. Father, we know that for many of us, year after year, this, is, this has been, um, this will be one of many, many, many uh, Easter services where we thought about and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And Father, we ask and pray that you will help us as we once again Go back to that glorious time and that wonderful scene. We pray, Father, that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, allow this truth, Father, to have a reality in our lives and hearts that will see us through our life, see us through trials, see us through our death, and that we will be so deeply rooted in this reality that it will greatly affect how we face life, how we face death, how we rejoice in eternity. And so please be with us now, we pray. Use this time for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. Today we focus on the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And guess what? Jesus Christ actually rose from the dead. He really did. I'm serious. It happened. I'm not kidding you. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Kids, I don't know how many of you came to church today through this back road, but there's this huge Easter bunny greeting you as you came through this back road. This isn't Easter bunny stuff, okay? This isn't what we're talking about. This isn't Punxsutawney Phil, you know, who, who supposedly comes out and sees it. This isn't that. That's not what we're talking about here, okay? We're talking about the fact that a person rose from the dead. In fact, when we use the phrase, Jesus Christ rose from the dead, don't think of that phrase as Jesus Christ rose from this concept of death. That's not what, when the phrase is given in the scriptures, it actually in scriptures is spoken like this. If I could give you the correct interpretation, Jesus Christ rose from the dead corpses, plural. That's what it means when the Bible says Jesus Christ rose from the dead. It means Jesus Christ rose from the dead corpses, okay? In other words, think about the history of mankind. Think about all your loved ones who have died. Think about all of the people who have died before us in this country. Think of all the people who have died in the wars. Think of all of the cemeteries filled with all of those dead corpses. Think of that one person rose again from the dead, never to die again. And that's what it means that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make this point, okay? I hope I'm making it. This really happened, okay? This really, really happened. And the reason I'm making this point is this. There is going to come a time in your life and in my life when you are going to face a great challenge. You are going to face a great challenge. I was in a room yesterday with one of our dear members, Bob Wygan, and Bob Wygan is laboring to take every single breath that he can take right now. And his time is, 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 is at hand for his final battle, perhaps. And guess what? Guess what? He's full of faith. He's full of hope. 
the nurses actually like to come into his room because he jokes with them and he's giving them faith and hope. You see, what I'm trying to say is this. You and I are going to face trials. You're going to face a trial. You're going to face a difficulty in your life. You're going to face some trial in your life. And at that point, whether Jesus is real or not is going to mean a ton to you. Because you're going to call out to Jesus. You're going to say, oh, Jesus, please help me. My baby's sick. Oh, Jesus, please help me. I just lost my, oh, Jesus, please help me. The doctor told me I'm dying. Jesus, please help me. And you need to believe. You need to understand. You need to know. You need to feel in your very bones that he's alive. That this is not a fantasy. And that's why I'm saying and why I prayed every Easter, you know, we, we do this and we, we go through this and you kids will get candy and it will all be fun and, and it's supposed to be fun. And you may chase after Easter eggs and that will all be fun. But I'm telling you, Jesus rose from the dead. He's alive. He's alive. And people actually saw him. And that's what we want to do today. So what I want to do today is I want to do just two simple things. Number one, I want us to look at the proof of the resurrection. And number two... I want us then to draw the implications of this resurrection for us. Let's begin with the proof. Now, your Bible is open, hopefully. If you have your Bible with you and you're following along, your Bible is open right now to the book of Luke. And I want to tell you something. I love this dude, Luke. I love Luke. I absolutely love Luke. You say, Todd, how in the world can you say I love Luke? I love Luke because Luke is the kind of guy I need right now. You see, if I'm going to commit myself to something for all of eternity, like, I'm going to die with one parachute. It's like jumping out of a plane with one parachute. When guys jump out of a plane, they always have two parachutes, by the way. They've got the main parachute, and then they've got the backup parachute if the main parachute doesn't. So you pull the, the cord on the main parachute, and the main parachute just goes, it doesn't do nothing. You're like, what? So you have the second parachute. But when you go into eternity, you got one parachute. I got one parachute going into eternity. One. No backup. One, it's Jesus. So I'm going to tell you something. If I'm taking, I'm going into eternity, I'm going to go through death with Jesus. I ain't going with Muhammad. I reject that. I ain't going with, 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 with Hinduism. I, know, I ain't going with that. Checked it out. Don't want it. I'm not going with secularism. That's dead. Forget it. I'm going to go through eternity holding on to Jesus. So here's why I like Luke. Luke wants to know the facts. Let me prove that to you. You're, you got your Bible open to Luke. Look at Luke chapter 1, where Luke begins this, this chapter. Look at Luke chapter 1, and look at what Luke says. That's why I like Luke. Luke says this. Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Notice what he says. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order. Hey, can you guys turn me down just a little bit? In, inasmuch as, as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have, have been fulfilled among us. Just as those, now look at this, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers, that word is diakonos, servants of the word, delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having a perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know, check this out, the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. Now, Luke, who is a scientist, who is a physician, who is a world-class historian, by the way, and he is still followed in terms of his history, even by secular people, Luke is a man who wants facts. He wants proof. He wants to know this is real. So look what he did. He went and he interviewed the eyewitnesses. 
He went and he interviewed the people who were delivering the word to them. And he also wrote this down so that Theophilus would know certainly that these things are true. And not only did he do this once. If you, if you want to follow along in your Bibles, turn to me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1. You see, Luke wrote two books in our New Testament, two very long books. He's one of the, the largest authors of our New Testament. He wrote also the book of Acts. Acts is actually the Gospel of Luke, volume 2 is what it is. He wrote it to the same man, Theophilus. And notice what, uh, what he wrote in Acts chapter 1. He said, the former account I made, the book of Luke, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to his apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by, check this out, many, many infallible proofs being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Now go back to Luke 24. Notice this Luke. Luke wants facts. He wants proof. He wants demonstration. If he's going to jump into eternity with one parachute, he wants to know that that one parachute is the true, right, and real one. So let's examine the, 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 the evidence of the resurrection, the evidence that Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead, that he was a dead corpse, that he was a dead, lifeless, cold corpse. If his eyes were still open, he was staring into nothing. He wasn't breathing. He, think of the last funeral that you were at where you saw an embalmed corpse. That's what Jesus was like, lying silent in that tomb, okay? He had been killed publicly. His death wasn't faked. He had been killed publicly by professional executioners whose job it was to make sure that he was dead. See, they didn't coddle people back in Rome, okay? If those executioners, they, they supposedly were supposed to execute somebody, and then that person got down and started walking around or was found to be alive, they were dead. They were the next ones who would be crucified. So they knew they, how to do their job. They, they, they saw and made sure he was dead. In fact, they saw him. They saw he was dead. They just wanted to make sure. They stabbed him in the side with a spear just to make sure that this guy was actually dead. Jesus Christ was dead. And then Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus came and they took his body off of the they took his body off of the cross and they carried his body away and they cleaned up all of the blood and all of the dirt and muck that was on him and they wrapped him in a linen garment and they put spices around him and they put him in the tomb. By the way, that's another proof. These guys had no clue that he was going to rise again from the dead. You don't wrap a guy in linen like he's a mummy and lay him in a tomb and put spices all over him and embalm him if you think he's going to rise again from the dead. They had no clue he was going to rise again from the dead. And not only that, the, girl, the women didn't have any clue. But before we move on to that, Jesus' enemies do us a great service here. You know what they do? They say, listen, we think they might steal the body. So we're going to make absolutely certain that that body cannot be stolen. We're going to put a guard. We're going to put a whole encampment of guards there. They're going to have a campfire. They're going to have tents. They're going to stay there. And they're going to stay there for the full three days. And we're going to put a seal over that tomb, over that bigger. We're going to put a seal. It's almost like a do not disturb. It's like a crime scene sort of thing. Nobody's to touch that seal at the penalty of death. Nobody. We're going to seal that tomb, and we're going to sit here, and we're going to watch it. His enemies, we're going to make sure that nobody stole that body. Nobody's going to steal that body. So you and I can rest assured that body wasn't stolen. 
And then the women come. And again, they're completely unprepared for this idea that he is going to rise from the dead. They came that morning in order to once again continue the hurried, there was a hurried process of embalming. They came to do the embalming. They came there and they stand there. And then all of a sudden, the tomb is open. The, the, the stone has been pulled away. The, the Roman soldiers are all passed out. They, they, they totally freaked out. And, uh, and, and there's nobody there. And then they see this, these angels, and these angels say, and if you look at the text, notice what the angels say, verse 6. He is not here, he has risen. And then they say this, remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that he had to, he was going to rise on the third day. And, and I don't get this, you know, in some ways, but in all of Jesus' teaching, these folks did not get the I'm going to rise from the third day message. They didn't get it. Because look at verse 8. It says, they remembered his words. And then notice what happens. They run back to the apostles. And look at verse 11. And their words seemed to them like idle tales. Some of your Bibles translate that nonsense. This is nonsense. He didn't rise from the dead. And they did not believe them. Now, Peter takes off. He takes off. He goes and checks it out, and he notices that it is kind of a strange scene. The, the linen cloths are just like he just came right out, out of them, and, and he's not here, and, 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 and what's going on? And then the scene transfers to these two guys who are walking to Emmaus, and Jesus comes walking right beside him. And you say, yeah, but why didn't they say, hey, wait, Jesus, we're there, his, they were his disciples. We know you, and, and look at your hands. Look at you. No, they, they didn't. Why? Why didn't they do that? Well, because Luke tells us, look at verse 16. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. Jesus enters into their conversation. He starts talking with them. And then notice what they said in verse 22. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. They said he was gone. We, we, this, this is like we couldn't imagine. What are you talking about? His body's not here. What are you talking about? And Jesus chastises them. Look at verse 25. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. You are confused because you never believed your Bible. You didn't believe your Bible. And then he explains to them, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter his glory? And then he opened up the scriptures to them. Well, they go running back to find the apostles. And when they find the apostles, they say, the Lord is risen, verse 34. And the apostles say, yeah, we know he is risen. And he's risen indeed. And he's appeared to Simon. And they started telling them what was going on. And then all of a sudden, bam, there's Jesus standing right there with them. He's standing there. And notice what it says in verse 36. It says, peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened. And suppose they had seen a spirit. Why am I making this point that these people were completely unprepared for this resurrection? I'm making this point so that you can understand that this idea of Jesus Christ raised from the dead was not something that they manufactured. It wasn't some figment of their imagination. It wasn't like some, it wasn't like they all got together and they were so sad that Jesus died. Because people say this even today. That they were so sad that Jesus died that they all got together and they said, oh, he was so great. I think he was, oh, he was just so great. He was wonderful. He was a great prophet. And they started lighting incense and they started getting themselves all worked up. And they started doing whatever concoctions and drinking stuff. And all of a sudden they had a vision. And in that vision they saw the spirit Jesus. And they said, oh, he's risen from the dead. That's not what happened at all. 
These guys said, they were like, no, he isn't. No, he isn't. You're crazy. This is foolish. This, this is crazy. Where's the body? What's going on? We're completely confused. We're completely dismayed. And then, boom, there he is. And notice what he does. Notice what he does next. Verse 38. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? Behold my hands. He's giving them evidence. Look at this hand. Look at that scar. You saw me hanging on the cross. Look at this hand. Look at that scar. Look at these feet. He says, look. Look at my hands. Look at my feet that is myself. Notice what he says next. And look at what he's doing. He's proving a fact, a reality, a historical fact. Look what he says next. Handle me. The word means to touch, to see if this is real. Touch me. Touch me. Grab my hand. Touch it. Hold it in your hand, okay? And he says, he says, uh, look at my hand on me for see and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones. Feel my bones in there. Feel the heat of my flesh. Feel my skin. This is me. This is evidence. And when he had said this, then he's going to give them. He showed them his hands and his feet. Then look at verse forty-one. Now they're shifting. They're shifting. They now believe, they, they, it says they do not believe for joy and marvel. They're like overwhelmed at this point. And then he says this, he's going to give them another line of evidence. Have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish. So Jesus takes this broiled fish and he puts it in his mouth and he's eating it. It's kind of a funny scene in one sense because they're all sitting around watching one guy eat. And he's eating that's pretty good. Next, they give him honeycomb. Kids, have you ever eaten honeycomb? It's not easy eating honeycomb. Do you know how you eat honeycomb? Honeycomb is combs of honey from the hive with honey in it. You break it off. And when you break it off, honey starts jerping everywhere. And Jesus did something like this. He pulled that piece of honeycomb out of the, out of the bowl and he... He put it in his mouth like this, honey dripping on his beard. And then he did this. What's that? That's proving that he's alive. He's a human being. He's the same Jesus that they ate with before. That's what he's saying. He's giving them proof. I'm alive. Look with me to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. It's another big chapter on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to prove that he is alive. And notice how Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. If you're following in the Pew Bible, it's 1323, page 1323. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you were saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that's actually important, he was a corpse, he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, that's, Jesus, that's Peter's uh, Greek name, and then by the twelve, that's what we just saw, that's where he was eating the, the fish, and after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. Picture this in your mind. 
500 of Jesus' followers and disciples who love him are gathered together and he shows up in the midst of them. What did that scene look like? What was that like? Jesus, it's you. Everybody wanted to see him. He probably spent time one-on-one with each one of them. They all wanted to give him a hug. They were all so excited. He's alive. He's alive. And they all saw him. And notice what Paul says next about that group of 500. He says, of whom the greater part remain to the present. You can go talk to them. I've got eyewitnesses. Go see them. Go see them. They, they saw. They were with. They hugged the resurrected Jesus Christ. They're there. They're proved. And then he goes on to say, some have fallen asleep. Some of them had died, but others of them were, most of them were still alive. Verse 7, after that he was seen by James and then by all the apostles. And then last of all, he was seen by me also as one who was born out of wedlock. You see, this is evidence in scripture that Jesus actually truly did rise from the dead. He is alive. There were eyewitnesses. They saw him. They saw him, they were amazed, they were, and then from that, they became witnesses, and they started telling everybody else, we saw him, we saw him, this is it, we saw him. And that's how we know anything was true in history. We have it from credible witnesses who saw it. I'm reading a history book right now, it's the history of the Panama Canal, and uh, it's an amazing story, actually. But, but. We, we have no movies of this. We have no photo. We have very few photographs of it, but we have accounts that people wrote down. I just read one, I just read one recently. Uh, uh, 30 engineers went over from France to help with the Panama Canal, but they were having so much problem with yellow fever and with malaria. 30 men got off the boat. 30 young men, fresh out of engineering college. I'm reading, I'm reading the journal that's writing this. 30 men, fresh out of engineering college, get out of the boat, and they, there they are in Panama City. Within two weeks, 28 of them were dead from malaria and yellow fever. How do I know that? A credible witness who saw them, who wrote it down. He was one of the 30. He was one of the two that survived. That's how history and evidence comes to us. And this is the exact same thing that is happening here. Jesus rose again from the dead, and these people saw it, and they became bold, and they told other people, and they explained, and they said, we were there, we saw it, and they were all willing, and most of them did, die violent deaths, and the last things, no doubt, they said was, he's alive, I saw him, I'm going to be with him. Now, what are the implications of this? What are the implications that this person, Jesus Christ, rose again from the dead? Well, there's several. One, this proves who he claimed to be. Now, if, you, if, if, if you're driving your car, police pulls you over and says, hey, uh, license and registration. You got a taillight out, license and registration. When you reach in your wallet and you pull out your license and you hand him a certified license, it's up to date, it's your picture on there and everything like that, what are you doing? You're proving that you are legally, that's your proof. You're proving that you can legally drive. If you, if, you, if you want to apply for a job and you're going to be some kind of brain surgeon or something, you got a brain surgeon degree and, and they want to see your brain surgeon degree and here's your brain surgeon degree and here's all your brain surgeon uh, uh, grades and you did pretty good because you want a guy who knows what he's doing who's going to mess around with your brain. And so, you know, there he is. That's, his, that's the credibility. That's the proof of it. When they ask Jesus, how, what sign are you going to do to prove to us that you are who you claim you are? Jesus says, here you go. Ready? I felt like he probably should have said, you may want to write this down. I'm going to die, and in three days, I'm going to rise again. You know what? I'm going to tell you something. 
If somebody said that to me and did it, good enough. I believe you. <laughs> He's right. That's, I mean, he's, I'm going to die, and it's, uh, here's how you're going to know that what I'm saying. I'm the son of God. I have come down from heaven. My father has sent me. I'm going to die for your sins. I am going to, I am, I'm going to judge you. I'm coming. At, how do we know this? Okay, here you go. You might want to write this down. I'm going to die, and then you count it. One, two, three. On the third day, I'm going to rise again from the dead. That's my proof. Wait for it. It's coming. And that's what it is. It's proof. Think about this sign, dear friends. You can be assured. He is the Son of God. He is. He is the Lamb of God. He was sent from the Father. He did die for my sins. I have been ransomed. I have been redeemed. He is Lord of all. He is coming again. Not only is it proof of who he claimed to be, it was also proof that the Father had sent him and the Father approved of what he did. Think about Jesus dying on the cross. Jesus is hanging on a cross. He's hanging there. He's been beaten to a pulp. He's hanging there. He's dying on the cross, okay? And the religious leaders, the certified official religious leaders of Israel were standing around him at that point, and they were jeering him and making fun of him and laughing him and saying, he is being cursed by God. He is there because God has rejected him. He is there because God is punishing them. He is a wicked, accursed man, and he's under the wrath of God. And Jesus, in one sense, could have given some help to their argument when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And his head eventually flops onto his chest. And here is this wretched, beat up, executed man. The sky had turned dark. God had turned from him. He was rejected by God, rejected by men, a nobody, a nothing. And his body was taken down by two men secretly and put into a tomb. And then he comes alive. And when he came alive, God raised him from the dead. It was a sign that the father accepted the sacrifice. It was a sign that the father accepted him as a righteous man. It was a sign that the father would justify us. And that's what the scriptures teach. In Romans chapter 4 and verse 24 it says this. But also, but also for us it shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus from the dead. The, Jesus our Lord from the dead. Who was delivered up because of our offenses but was raised for our justification. The Father has justified us. The Father has accepted Jesus' sacrifice. That's another implication of this. The third implication is this. Jesus is an alive, living, active Savior. You want to get saved by Muhammad? No, go, go find his tomb. You could speak to his dust. It's there in the ground. It's been there since the 600 AD. You might get saved by Buddha. Go find Buddha. He's been there a couple of thousand years or so, a couple thousand years. Go find his dust. Go speak to his dust. Oh, great Buddha. Great Buddha. Don't speak too loud. You may blow him away. He's dust. Oh, great Buddha. You want to get saved by Karl Marx? You want to get saved by Freud? 
You want to get saved by the, the great secular thinkers of our age? You want to get saved by Immanuel Kant? Go find their dust. It's somewhere. Go find it. Go find their tombs. You want to get saved by Jesus Christ? Well, the tomb's empty, so don't go there. He's alive. He's living. He saves. He delivers. He's a high priest at the right hand of the throne of the Father. He represents us there. He can save all who come to him. In John, 1 John, John writes this, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Look at John. Here's John, his disciple. Here's John who looked in that empty tomb. Here's John who's saying, he is right there at the right end of the Father. Jesus Christ is alive. And he's actively fulfilling his ministry as the great high priest and as the propitiation. The next verse, John says this, he himself, the living, live Jesus, is the propitiation of our sins, and not of ours only, but also of the whole world. Romans chapter 8, verse 34, Paul says this, Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. All who die fall asleep in Jesus, they go to be with him. Why? Because he's alive. He's a sympathetic high priest and you can go to him. And the carpenter, the builder of Nazareth, understands your pain. He understands your hurt. He understands all that. But he's also the glorious Lord who can give you grace and mercy. You're a sinner and you need your sins forgiven. You can go to him. He's alive. And all that he did on the cross and all of his blood and all that he is is there. It's represented by him himself. He is our salvation. He is, the church is in union with him. He is the head of the church and he gives all the life and vitality flows from him. Have you ever experienced things here in this church? Have you ever experienced the power of God? Have you ever experienced a reality here? That's because the living Jesus Christ is pouring his life through his church, which is his body. He's alive. He's active. He's here. He's working. He's saving. He is the one and his, all of, he gives salvation all around the world to all people of all tribes and colors and, and ethnic backgrounds and everything. He's still doing it this day because he's alive. He's alive. He's an active living savior. Here's another implication. The Bible calls him the first fruits. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If your Bible's still open there, look at verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead. That's an emphatic statement. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What does this mean? What does this mean? Well, picture this. Imagine you had a strawberry farm. And your strawberry farm, you have 100 acres of strawberries. There's just strawberry plants everywhere out there. And the spring has come, and you looked out over that strawberry field, 100 acres, as far as you can see, it's just all these strawberry plants. They blossomed, and you saw all of those flowers. They're so beautiful. There's all those white flowers out there. Then you walked out, and you looked in your strawberry patch, and there there were these small little green strawberries that then came, little green ones, and some of them turned a little bit white, and, and there they were. You said, oh, my, hope it's a good year for strawberries. And then one day you walked out in that field and there were all that green greenery, all those little green berries. And all of a sudden, right out in the middle of that field was a big red strawberry, the first strawberry of the season. 
you wandered down the aisle, the road real quickly, you got to that beautiful red strawberry, and you picked that baby. And you tasted it. And it was so sweet. And you said, this is going to be a great year for strawberries. And you looked over, and there were thousands and thousands and thousands of strawberries, little green strawberries, who were within weeks going to be rich and red and beautiful. That's the word that Paul uses here when he says this. Jesus Christ is the firstborn. He is the first fruits of a great harvest to come. Jesus Christ is the man. All humanity dies. Notice what Paul says next, by the way. He says in verse 21, For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, and after that, afterward, those who are Christ at his coming. We are all going to rise again from the dead. We are, our bodies are going to rise again from the dead. Jesus Christ, with his, when, when one person rose out of the multiplicity of corpses, one human being, one man, the last Adam, rose up alive, never to die again, defeating death, destroying death. Death has no grip over him. Death has no power over him. He was just the first fruits, the first fruits of an entire mass of humanity that is going to rise up from the dead. And we're going to be a part of that. And we're going to have resurrected bodies. See, when you die... Your soul separates from your body. It happened to Jesus. He was hanging on the cross and he said, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Jesus' spirit left his body. His body was then laid in a tomb. And then his body rose again from the dead. His spirit and body were reunited. And his body rose again from the dead, never to die again. And that is going to happen to us. That is going to happen to us. Our spirits will be reunited to our bodies. And this body that you are in right now is going to be raised from the dead. And you are going to live for all of eternity in this body. It's going to be glorified. It's going to be magnified. But it is going to be the body. Your body's not going to rot in the grave forever. Because Jesus rose from the dead. Listen how Charles Spurgeon said this. Then there is that master doctrine of the Christian faith which was not revealed to men in all its fullness until Jesus came. I mean the doctrine of the resurrection of the body. It is for this body that we have so many fears. Corruption, earth, and worms are its heritage. And it seems a hard thing that these eyes, which have seen the light, should be blinded in the mold. That these hands, which have been active in God's service, should lie still in the grave. That these limbs, which have trodden the pilgrim's path, should be able to move no longer. But courage, believer, your body shall rise again. Laid in the earth it may be, but kept in the earth it cannot be. The voice of nature bids you die, but the voice of the omnipotent bids you live again. For the trumpet shall sound, and then the bodies of the saints shall rise. From beds of dust and silent clay to realms of everlasting day. This is our consolation, Spurgeon said, that as Jesus Christ died and rose again from the dead, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him as we have this double comfort for soul and body. What more do we want? Dear friends, we're going to rise again with him. You will have a body. It will be glorified. It will be a spiritual body, but that doesn't mean it's immaterial. It will be able to live for centuries and centuries and centuries. 
Your body will be able to live for centuries and centuries and centuries. For a millennium. It will never die. Death can't penetrate it anymore. Death will literally be out of a job. Death will be completely destroyed. And not only that, Jesus' resurrection set this in motion. Jesus' resurrection started this. It started, and this, Jesus' resurrection is the first of many things that are going to take place, including a new heavens and a new earth, a, 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 vast, a restored universe, a restored earth, an Eden-like quality, trees that will never die, animals that will never die, streams and waters and flowing and life, and all things will be restored by the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what he, he talks about there. That look at verse 24. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. The end has already begun. The end has already begun. The end of everything. The, 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 glorious, the glorious resurrection has already begun. I, all, all of life, all that this world has, has been geared to make, that has already, the glorious end of a new heavens and new earth, it's already begun. Do you know where it began? It began the minute that lifeless corpse opened its eyes. The minute that lifeless corpse opened its eyes, the new world was coming. The resurrection from the dead was coming. You say, you know, this kind of sounds fantastic. It sort of sounds like a Marvel movie. You promised us that this wasn't, you know, Easter Bunny stuff. But it's starting to sound that way a little bit. It's so fantastic what it is. Well, first of all, let me say this. Jesus said that this is what was going to happen. But you know what? Are you really, are you really, really convinced that this is just some kind of future fantasy world? Have you not experienced any of this power yet? See, we're going to get into the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians makes a direct link between the power that rose Jesus up from the dead and the power that is at work in your life right this minute. Have you been born again? Are you different? Maybe you're different than what you, you remember yourself to be. Or maybe you were born again when you were so young, you don't remember that. But you know this, you're different than the people of the world. You think differently than them. You're put together differently. You have different desires. And for goodness sakes, you got up and, and you, you, uh, you came to church this Sunday morning. You wanted to worship God. Why are you so weird? Why are you so different? Are you spiritually alive? Do you notice that there's a power at work within you? You're not perfect. No, we're not even close to perfect. But God's doing something in you. What is he doing? What's happening in you? What is that? The Bible says that's the exact same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Just watch on the screen. This is where we're going in the book of Ephesians soon. Very, Ephesians 1, skip the 1.10. Go to the next one. Ephesians 1.19 says this. 
What is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his mighty power, look at this, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also which is to come. This is part of Paul's prayer when Paul says, I pray that the Holy Spirit will help you to understand the power that is at work in you. It's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. In Ephesians 2, Paul writes this, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, now here's your personal resurrection, your spiritual resurrection, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Your salvation, your new heart, the dynamics of God changing the way you're thinking and changing the way you're feeling and changing the way you're acting, changing your desires and, and your interests and your motives. And the, all of a sudden, eternal life became in, in something you became interested in. You? Many of you here were not interested in eternal life at all. Many of you here could care less if God had forgiven you of your sins. Many of you were much more concerned about whether your sports team was doing good or whether your job was doing good or whether you were going to have fun or whether you could afford that new boat or whether you were going to... That, you didn't care. Somebody wanted to talk to you about being forgiven, about having eternal life. You could care less. And then all of a sudden you started caring. Why? The resurrection power of Christ began to work in you. The same power that's going to make a new heavens and new earth is starting on you right now. You're part of this. You're part of it. Paul actually talks of us as being the first fruits who believe in Christ now. That's part of it as well. We're part of it as well. This is what God is doing. God is doing something, and it's real. As real as you know this is going on in your own heart, that's why the tomb was empty. That power was at work. That's because the Lord Jesus Christ is in heaven, and that's because the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven is alive. He's alive, he's well, he's healthy, he's vibrant, he's eternal, and he's giving eternal life to all who believe. So how do we apply this to ourselves? How do we apply this to ourselves? Well, first of all, we better believe it. Do you know what Jesus did? You know what Jesus kept doing in Luke 24? You don't have to turn back there, but I'll read it to you. These are the words of Jesus. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. How about verse 38? Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? You should be believing this stuff. What should this stuff do to us? Well, let me start where I began. Hey, guess what? Jesus rose from the dead. I'm serious. He really did. And you know what that should do to us? It should make us really happy. We should rejoice. You may even want to skip and jump and leap about and praise God. It really happened. There's some evidence in Scripture that as glorified as Jesus is now and as powerful as he is now, as we've seen in the book of Revelation, as brilliant and amazing as he is now in all of his glory, there's some intimation in Scripture that he still bears his scar. He still bears his scar. John said, I saw him as a lamb that was slain on the throne of God. John, John saw scars, or he saw the sign of, of a violent death somewhere. Can you imagine if that's true? 
Think of a loved one that you know that has died and gone to heaven. Hopefully you have a loved one that you know that has died and gone to heaven. Is it possible that they have seen the actual scar? They've touched. Is it possible? Is it possible? I think it's very possible. See, he's there in a body. A glorified human body. They're not yet. They're going to get theirs, but he is. And they're interacting with him. I will go and be with him. You will be with me in paradise. My dear friends, we're going to rise from the dead one day. When we die, we're going to go be with him. But we're going to rise from the dead one day, and we're going to have fingers. And we're going to feel. And we're going to walk with him in a new heavens and new earth forever and ever and ever. And we're going to have an opportunity to talk with him and be with him. And look at his scar. Sammy Rutherford wrote this amazing hymn, and he talks about the glory of Jesus in heaven. And he says, you know what, I'm not going to look at all the glory. I'm, not, I'm going to look upon his hands. And when I see those scars, one of the things that I'm going to know is that Todd Shawson's sins caused that, but they were paid because of that too. Todd Shawson, I'm here in heaven because of those scars, because of you, because of who you are. Dear ones, we Christians need to be so happy, so excited, so blessed, so hopeful, so forward-looking, so brave. Stop worrying. You have nothing to worry about. His grace is going to be with you. He reigns. The resurrected Christ reigns. And the next time you're facing a challenge... And that challenge might be a great loss. That challenge may be a great pain. That challenge may be your own coming down. You can say by faith, Oh, living Lord Jesus, give me grace. I'm coming to be with you. Give me grace. Are there any of you here who are not Christians? You haven't trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ? Here's the good news for you. He offers to save you even this day. He says, come, come to me, and I'll give you rest. Come to me, and I'll apply my blood. I'll apply my cross to you. You'll be completely forgiven. I will give you eternal life today. Today could actually be a, a resurrection day for you. I will give you new life. I will give you eternal life. I will make you mine forever. I will do it this day. How in the world does a carpenter from Nazareth have the right to say that? Because he's the Lord. He's all-powerful. He's the very Son of God. And he can save you. He can save you. Dear ones, don't reject him. Don't reject him. There are people today who will laugh and scoff at this message. They will laugh and scoff at this message. They will make fun of us. They will try to poke me in the chest and say, yeah, yeah, this is just pie in the sky. This is pie and pie. And you know what? Hopefully, lovingly, I'm going to poke them in the chest back. And I'm going to say, hey, wait a minute, buddy. Boom. 
You're telling me that secularism is right. You're telling me that secularism is the answer. You're telling me that I should follow you into what? A meaningless world that has no beginning or no end, a meaningless death, and you're telling me to follow you into your kingdom? I'm looking over your shoulder into what secularism has made of this country. I'm looking over your shoulder. And what I see is destruction. What I see is depression. What I see is disillusionment. What I see is despair. What I see is decay. What I see is things falling apart. Your answer is no answer at all. I'm following Jesus. I'm going to the kingdom. I'm going to be with him. I'm serving a living Savior. Oh, dear ones, come with us. Don't reject him. Don't reject him because you're going to stand before him one day. And you don't want to stand before him having rejected him. You don't want that. You don't want him to then reject you and say, be gone then. No, you want to come running into his arms. Do it today. Do it today. Run into his arms. Just simply say to him by faith, Lord Jesus, I believe you. I trust you. I give myself to you. Let's pray together. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you so much that we're not speaking to the ceiling right now. We thank you that we're speaking to you, the living Savior. We thank you that as real as you were to that room of men, that you suddenly appeared, that you are that close to us right now. You are the living Savior. You are alive. You are powerful. You can save. You are glorious, and thank you. Thank you for being willing to die for us. Thank you for being willing to be buried for us, and thank you so much for rising again from the dead. Make us yours. Help us to love you, trust you, rejoice in you, rest in you. Help us to not be slow of heart. Help us to believe. And for those right now who are bowing their head perhaps for the first time and are saying, Lord Jesus, me, please save me. Have mercy upon me. Oh, Lord, please come to them and give them that great assurance that, yes, all who come to you, you will not turn one aside. Hear their prayer. Save them now, we pray. In Jesus' precious name.